Welcome to the Huberman Lab Podcast, where we discuss science and science-based tools for everyday life. I'm Andrew Huberman, and I'm a professor of neurobiology and ophthalmology at Stanford School of Medicine. Today, I have the pleasure of introducing Dr. Duncan French as my guest on the Huberman Lab Podcast. Dr. French is the Vice President of Performance at the UFC Performance Institute, and he has over 20 years of experience working with elite professional and Olympic athletes. Prior to joining the UFC, French was the Director of Performance Science at the University of Notre Dame, and he has many, many quality peer-reviewed studies to his name, exploring, for instance, how the particular order of exercise, whether or not one performs endurance exercise prior to resistance training or vice versa, how that impacts performance of various movements and endurance training protocols, as well as the impact on hormones such as testosterone, estrogen, and some of the stress hormones such as cortisol. He's also done fascinating work exploring how neurotransmitters, things like dopamine and epinephrine, also called adrenaline, can impact hormones and how hormones can impact neurotransmitter release. What's particularly unique about Dr. French's work is that he's figured out specific training protocols that can maximize, for instance, testosterone output or reduce stress hormone output in order to maximize the effects of training in the short term and in the long term. So today you're going to learn a lot of protocols, whether or not you're into resistance training or endurance training, you will learn, for instance, how to regulate the duration of your training and the type of training that you do in order to get the maximum benefit from that training over time. So whether or not you are somebody who just exercises recreationally for your health, whether or not you're an amateur or professional athlete, or whether or not you're just trying to maximize your health through the use of endurance and or resistance training, today's discussion will have a wealth of takeaways for you. There are only a handful of people working at the intersection of elite performance, mechanistic science, and that can do so in a way that leads to direct, immediately applicable protocols that anybody can benefit from. Dr. French also provides some incredibly important insights about the direction that sport and exercise are taking in the world today and their applications towards performance and health. Before we begin, I'd like to emphasize that this podcast is separate from my teaching and research roles at Stanford. It is, however, part of my desire and effort to bring zero cost to consumer information about science and science-related tools to the general public. In keeping with that theme, I'd like to thank the sponsors of today's podcast. Our first sponsor is Athletic Greens. Athletic Greens is an all-in-one vitamin mineral probiotic drink. I've been taking Athletic Greens since 2012, so I'm delighted that they're sponsoring the podcast. The reason I started taking Athletic Greens and the reason I still take Athletic Greens once or twice a day is that it helps me cover all of my basic nutritional needs. It makes up for any deficiencies that I might have. In addition, it has probiotics, which are vital for microbiome health. I've done a couple of episodes now on the so-called gut microbiome and the ways in which the microbiome interacts with your immune system, with your brain to regulate mood, and essentially with every biological system relevant to health throughout your brain and body. With Athletic Greens, I get the vitamins I need, the minerals I need, and the probiotics to support my microbiome. If you'd like to try Athletic Greens, you can go to athleticgreens.com slash Huberman and claim a special offer. They'll give you five free travel packs plus a year's supply of vitamin D3K2. There are a ton of data now showing that vitamin D3 is essential for various aspects of our brain and body health. Even if we're getting a lot of sunshine, many of us are still deficient in vitamin D3. And K2 is also important because it regulates things like cardiovascular function, calcium in the body, and so on. 
Again, go to athleticgreens.com slash Huberman to claim the special offer of the five free travel packs and the year supply of vitamin D3 K2. Today's episode is also brought to us by Element. Element is an electrolyte drink that has everything you need and nothing you don't. That means the exact ratios of electrolytes are an element, and those are sodium, magnesium, and potassium, but it has no sugar. I've talked many times before on this podcast about the key role of hydration and electrolytes for nerve cell function, neuron function, as well as the function of all the cells and all the tissues and organ systems of the body. If we have sodium, magnesium, and potassium present in the proper ratios, all of those cells function properly and all our bodily systems can be optimized. If the electrolytes are not present and if hydration is low, we simply can't think as well as we would otherwise. Our mood is off, hormone systems go off, our ability to get into physical action, to engage in endurance and strength and all sorts of other things is diminished. So with Element, you can make sure that you're staying on top of your hydration and that you're getting the proper ratios of electrolytes. If you'd like to try Element, you can go to drinkelement, that's lmnt.com slash Huberman, and you'll get a free Element sample pack with your purchase. They're all delicious. So again, if you want to try Element, you can go to elementlmnt.com slash Huberman. Today's episode is also brought to us by Waking Up. Waking Up is a meditation app that includes hundreds of meditation programs, mindfulness trainings, yoga nidra sessions, and NSDR, non-sleep deep rest protocols. I started using the Waking Up app a few years ago because even though I've been doing regular meditation since my teens, and I started doing yoga nidra about a decade ago, my dad mentioned to me that he had found an app, turned out to be the Waking Up app, which could teach you meditations of different durations and that had a lot of different types of meditations to place the brain and body into different states and that he liked it very much. So I gave the Waking Up app a try and I too found it to be extremely useful because sometimes I only have a few minutes to meditate, other times I have longer to meditate. And indeed, I love the fact that I can explore different types of meditation to bring about different levels of understanding about consciousness, but also to place my brain and body into lots of different kinds of states, depending on which meditation I do. I also love that the Waking Up app has lots of different types of yoga nidra sessions. For those of you who don't know, yoga nidra is a process of lying very still, but keeping an active mind. It's very different than most meditations. And there's excellent scientific data to show that yoga nidra and something similar to it called non-sleep deep rest or NSDR, can greatly restore levels of cognitive and physical energy, even with just a short 10-minute session. If you'd like to try the Waking Up app, you can go to wakingup.com slash Huberman and access a free 30-day trial. Again, that's wakingup.com slash Huberman to access a free 30-day trial. And now, my conversation with Dr. Duncan French. Duncan French, great to see you again. Likewise, likewise. Thank you. I don't often have many uh, Stanford professors in the Performance Institute, so I'm, I'm, I'm really excited. Oh, well, this place is amazing, and um, you have a huge uh, role in making it what it is. The reason I'm so excited to talk with you is that you're one of these rare beasts that you have been involved in human performance and athletic performance at the collegiate level. Uh, you obviously very involved in MMA now and the UFC Performance Institute. And you also uh, had the fortunate experience, I like to think, of doing a PhD in, um, what exactly was the PhD in? It was exercise physiology. Exercise physiology. Yeah. So you're familiar also with designing studies, control groups, all the sorts of things that, in my opinion anyway, are kind of lacking from the internet, uh, social media version of uh, exercise science, which is that people throw out all sorts of ideas about how people should be training, what they should be doing and eating and not eating and doing. 
And certainly science doesn't have all the answers, but I just think it's so rare to find somebody that's at the convergence of all those different fields. And uh, so I have a lot of questions for you today that I'm, I'm sure the audience are going to be really interested in it. Well, listen, I mean, I, I appreciate that. It's very humbling. And um, yeah, I've worked hard to get to where I am. Um, but I've always tried to be authentic. And I think authenticity comes alongside, you know, an academic rigor and, and objectivity and insight and, and, and knowledge base, right? At the end of the day, it's about um, having confidence, having expertise and being able to deliver that expertise to, to in my world, to athletes. Um, and I think uh, that's what I've always tried to do. I've tried to have many strings to my bow um, so that I can talk with many different hats on. You know, one day I'm talking to a coach, the next day I'm talking to an athlete, the next day I'm talking to a CEO, the next day I'm talking to a, you know, an academic professor. And, you know, so I think, you know, being able to wear those different hats is certainly a skill set that I've tried to, um, to build throughout my career. And, you know, like I said, I've been blessed to work with, uh, I think it was 36 different professional or Olympic sports last time I've co- I, I Counted. So, um, yeah, it's been, it's been a wild ride. It's been great. Uh, which of those sports was the most unusual? Um, I've worked with crown green bowling, um, <laughs> which I don't know as an American guy. I don't know, you know, how well I've you know never that, heard of it. Basically imagine a, um, you know, a 20 foot by 20 foot square of turf, um, with a, a small raise in the middle, i.e. the crown. So it's, it, it slopes to the edges. Um, and then, you know, you use, you, you, you throw out a white jack, a smaller ball, and then you, you sm- roll out larger balls to, to try and get closest to the jack. It's a, it's a very, uh, European thing, let's say. Interesting. <laughs> but yeah, sports performance at Crown Green Bowling. There you go. All right. Um, wow. And then to, uh, mixed martial arts fighters Absolutely. and, and, and everything in between. So, um, along those lines, uh, could you give us a little bit of your background? You know, where'd you start out? Where are you from originally? Yeah, I'm from the northeast of England. Um, so I'm from a, a town called Harrogate, which is in, in Yorkshire, which is a northern kind of area of the of Nice the sunny weather all year long. <laughs> yeah, you can imagine. Yeah, with the, the two weeks of summer that we get, you know. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I did my uh, my undergraduate studies there in sports science. I, you know, I did teacher training to be a physical education teacher after that. Like most people, I then, you know, worked as a high school physical education teacher. You know, great experience working with kids, you know, developing, um, you know, athletic qualities but something in the back of my mind always you know I wanted more I wanted to be uh, you know to be at the higher end of elite sport you know I was a failed athlete like like many people I I represented my country in in different sports and things but I never made it professionally Um, so you know that that little seed was sown in as much as I then started to reach out to, um, you know, to different areas to do a PhD, whether it was in the UK or also, you know, chance my arm took a punt, see if I could get over to the States. And you know, all my buddies were going on, you know, gap years after the Finnish university or whatever, and, and going to Bali and hanging out or whatever, traveling through Thailand. And I figured, well, you know, I, I've always loved the States and can I go and kill two birds with one stone and do something academic, continue my studies, um, but also do it in a different environment and get some life life experience and then many many rejections as, as i'm sure you're kind of aware from different professors whether it was roger Aranoka or you know william kramer so you just wrote to these folks i just called cold called and, and and sent out information and said yeah so have you got any opportunities um push back from them all but you know 
dogged and kept kept asking and um yeah dr william kramer who was at ball state university in indiana at the time um you know a, a muscle neuroendocrinologist and, and researcher in muscle physiology using resistance training um you know he basically said listen i can guarantee you funding for the first year of your studies but not the next three sounds like a typical academic <laughs> response <laughs> yeah. i can take care of you but not that well necessarily right, right. Yeah. yeah so spoke to my parents and said hey can we can we Take a punt, and they, you know, they were great in supporting me. And um, yeah, long story short, came out to uh, to begin my PhD at, at, at Ball State. After a year, Dr. Kramer transferred to UConn, uh, you know, Connecticut in stores in the Northeast there, and um, I transferred to him and with him, and um, yeah, four great years with my with my PhD and and getting my PhD with uh, with a really prolific um, research group that looked at you know neuroendocrinology, hormonal work, um, but using resistance training primarily as an exercise stressor. Um, as a major mechanism and then looking at all the different physiologies off the back of resistance training. Yeah, you guys were enormously productive. I found uh, dozens of papers on how weight training impacts hormones and your name's on all of them. Um, and it's remarkable. I, I have a question about this. I'll just inject a question about weight training and hormones. You hear this all the time that doing these big heavy compound movements or resistance training increases androgens, things like testosterone, DHT, DHEA, and so forth. Does anyone know how that actually happens? Like what about move, what about in, what is it about engaging motor neurons under heavy loads sends a signal to the endocrine system, hey, release testosterone. I've never actually been able to find that in a textbook. Yeah, well, I mean, and how can I do more of that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as, as much as I know, you know, and again, I'm digging out into the annals of Duncan French's kind of brain now. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's a stress response, right? It's mechanical stress and it's metabolic stress. And these are, you know, the downstream regulation of, of testosterone release at the gonads um, comes from many different areas. Um, you know, the, the, my work primarily looked at, um, you know, catecholamines and, and, and sympathetic arousal. So and things how, like epinephrine, adrenaline. Correct. Yeah, epinephrine, adrenaline, um, you know, noradrenaline, um, how, how they were signaling the signaling cascade using, you know, the HPA axis, releasing um, cortisol, and then, you know, looking at how that also influenced the adrenal medulla to release, um, you know, androgens and then signaling that at the gonads. That raises an interesting question. So in uh, presumably weight training in women, people would... Uh, who don't have testes, also it increases testosterone. Yes, yes. And is that purely through the adrenals? When women lift weights, their adrenal glands release testosterone? Absolutely. I mean, that is the only area of, of testosterone release for females. And yes, it's the same downstream cascade. Obviously, the extent to which it happens is, is significantly less in females. But that's how you, th there's good, good data out there that shows, you know, females can increase their anabolic environment, their internal anabolic milieu, um, using resistance training as a stressor. And then they get the consequent muscle tissue growth, um, you know, whether it's tendon, ligament adaptations, you know, the, the, the beneficial consequences of resistance training, which is driven by anabolic stimuli. Yeah. I have two questions about that. The first one is something that you mentioned, which is that the, the androgens, the testosterone comes from the adrenals under resistance loads in women. Is the same true in men? I mean, we hear that the testes produce testosterone when we weight train uh, for, for men that have testes, but, um, do, 
do we know whether or not it's the adrenals or the testes in men that are increasing testosterone yeah, more, the, both, a little bit from each? The, there's a, there's a, the, the field is divided presently. Um, and as much as understanding the acute adre the, the acute um, adrenergic response in terms of you know anabolic um, response to exercise in an acute phase and the exposure to um, you know a stimulus that is stress driven, which might be partly from the adrenal glands, partly from the gonads, versus a longitudinal exposure um, to anabolic environments, which is primarily driven by obviously the gonads and the release, the endocrine environment from from testosterone release at the gonads. So th this the, the field is split in terms of how exercise is promoting hypertrophy, you know, muscle tissue growth, um, and whether that is very much a, a, an adrenal. Um, stimuli or if that's significant enough in these acute responses versus the longitudinal exposure just elevated basal levels of, of anabolic te testosterone uh, habitual levels so it sounds like in most case like with most things it's probably both it's probably it, the adrenals it, and the gonads yeah and then you mentioned that uh, testosterone can have um, enhancing effects or growth effects on tendon and ligament also that you don't often hear about that people always think you know testosterone muscle but testosterone has a lot of effects on other tissues that are important for performance, it sounds like. Um, can you yeah. Help? Yeah, what's the story yeah, there? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, the, the, the testosterone hormone is, it, I mean, listen, there's androgen receptors on um, neural tissue, on neural axons. Pretty much everywhere. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, it, the, the binding capacity of testosterone and influencing different tissues within the body, I touched on, you know, muscle tissue, but, you know, the, the, the ligaments, the tendons, um, even bone to, to some extent, you know, testosterone is, is potential to influence that. Um, in, in terms of removing osteopenic kind of characteristics, et cetera. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a, a, magic, a magic hormone, let's say, um, with many, uh, many end, end impacts in terms of adaptation. I definitely want to get back to your trajectory, but as long as we're on uh, the interactions between androgens, testosterone, and its derivatives and different tissues, you know, from the work that you did as a PhD student, and um, and throughout your career, could you say that there's a there are some general principles of training that favor testosterone production in terms of that the, that somebody who's not an elite athlete could use somebody who's already adapted to weight training somewhat, like they know the difference between a dumbbell and a barbell, and they know they know the various movements. They're not going to damage themselves, but once they're doing that, I mean, I've heard shorter sessions are better than longer sessions, but in rep loads, wait, now there's a lot of parameter space. But if you were going to throw out some of the um, the parameters that you think are most important to pay attention to for the typical person who's trying to use weight training to build or maintain muscle, yeah, lose body fat, so body recomposition, and or stay strong and healthy for sport of mm -hmm. a different kind. Yeah, so the work that we obviously, you know, I was exposed to back in my PhD, um, it, it was a double-edged sword. And as much as testosterone is really stimulated by an intensity factor uh, and also a volume factor. Now, growth hormone is a little bit different. That's largely driven by an intensity factor alone. Oh, really? Correct. I always thought the growth hormone was driven by volume. Which just goes to show you, Maybe I've got no, 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 right. no. I think you're probably right. Which just goes to show you that most of what's out there on the internet right. is completely right. Not only, not only is it wrong, it's usually backwards. So no, trust, I, I, <laughs> I, I no, trust your instinct because, because I think people just make this stuff up, right? right? At, because it's very hard to measure growth hormone and testosterone. And, uh, and I can't imagine most of the, the stuff that I see out there, they're taking drips and, and, you know, 
measuring free versus bound and all this kind of stuff. But that's what you do in, in laboratories. Right, yeah. yeah. You, you look at total composition, then you look at how much of that is free circulating yeah. in the system, how much is bound and therefore biologically active, bound to receptor, creating right. adaptation. Um, but yeah, coming back to testosterone in terms of the training strategies, it's largely driven by both an intensity and a volume factor. So if you look at many of the exercise interventions that we use to try and investigate and interrogate testosterone, um, it was it was usually you know a, a six by ten protocol. So you're touching at six about, by ten, meaning yeah, six sets of ten repetitions, which is you know. It's quite a large, you know, 60 repetitions is quite a large volume for a, a single exercise. And that was usually pitched at about 80% intense of a one repetition max intensity. Okay, so 80% of the one rep max, six six sets of 10 reps separated by rest of like- Two minutes. Two minutes, which is yeah. actually pretty fast, yeah. at least to me. It Anytime is you see these the two to three minutes, when you're actually watching the clock, yeah. Those two-minute rest periods go by pretty fast. By the third, fourth set, you're, you're dying for more. Yeah. yeah, and I think you know we, you know, we we formulated that kind of exercise protocol to really target you know the, the release of testosterone and try and drive up these anabolic environments to study the you know the endocrine um, you know consequences. But I think that's 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 the type of protocol that is mo most advantageous for driving anabolic environments. And that was it for the workout. Yeah, yeah I mean, we, we would do that in a back squat. So, you know, multi-joint, um, you know, challenging exercise, multi-muscle, multi-joint, 80% load of, of your one repetition max, and then six by 10. We did play around with, you know, your classic German volume type 10 by 10 um, kind of protocols, um, but they were just unsustainable at that 80%. The, the key to what we also did was we always adjusted um, the loads to make sure that it was 10 repetitions that were sustained. So if the load was too too high and an athlete or a participant had to uh, drop the weight on, on the sixth repetition, we would unload the bar and make sure they completed the 10 repetitions. Bringing me back to the point of it's an intensity and a volume derivative that, that is going to be most advantageous for testosterone release. That's really interesting. And one thing that you mentioned there is especially interesting to me, which is you said when you go from six sets of 10 repetitions to 10 sets of 10 repetitions, you st it's not as beneficial and might even be counterproductive. But to me, the difference between six and 10 sets is only four sets. It doesn't even sound that much. So that sort of hints at the possibility that the thresholds for going from a workout that increases testosterone to a workout that diminishes testosterone is actually a pretty narrow margin. Yeah, and I think it comes back to that intensity factor then. You know, what, what we saw, with the, that 10 by 10 protocol really sees pretty significant drop-offs in the load. Um, and again, we're trying to stimulate with intensity, with mechanical strain through intensity, as well as metabolic strain through volume. And I think that's that's the paradigm that you've got to look at is that the mechanical load has to come from, you know, the the, vol the actual weight on the bar and the volume um, is, is the metabolic stimulus. How much are we driving lactate? How much are we driving, you know, glycogenolysis in, in, in terms of that type of energy system for, um, you know, executing a, a 10 by 10 protocol. And what we often saw was just a significant reduction in the intensity capabilities of, a, of an athlete to sustain that. So we shortened the volume um, to try and maintain the intensity. Interesting. And you could imagine just taking very long rest, keeping the session, being a big lazy bear in, the, right. in training. I sometimes do this. I tell myself I'm going to work out for 45 minutes and then two hours later I'm done, but not because I was huffing and puffing the whole time, but because I was training really slowly. Right. Is there any evidence that training slowly 
can offset some of the negative effects of doing a lot of volume? Well, it's an old adage of, you know, two responses to your question. I mean, the first one I would say, you know, there's a difference between 10 sets of six and six sets of 10. Um, and I think that comes back to the volume conversation. You know, six sets of 10 is driving up metabolic stimulus. Um, if, if you're doing 10 sets of six, you can probably take it to a higher intensity, but you're not going to get the same metabolic load. You're not going to get the same internal metabolic environment that drives the lactate release that they will then signal, you know, further anabolic testosterone release because of the lactate in your body. Um, that, that, that's a key consideration. The rest is often the consideration that's overlooked um, out there in general population and in many sporting environments. You know that the rest is is as important a programming variable as the load and the intensity, the intensity, the load, the, the volume, etc. Um, and yes, if you remove, if if you extend the volume, if you extend the the duration of your rest periods, what you're ultimately doing is influencing that metabolic stimulus again. You're allowing the flushing of the body, the removal of waste products. You know, lactate to be you know removed via from from the body and then the the metabolic environment is reduced so, so you want so if i if i understand correctly you want to create a metabolic stress absolutely so so the way that i've been training slow and lazy is not necessarily the best way to go i could i could in theory do a 45 or 60 minute session where i pack in more more work per unit time i'm not going to be able to quote unquote, perform as well. I won't be able to lift as much. I'm going to have to un you know, unweight the bar between sets or maybe even during sets if I have someone who could do that. But yeah. it sounds like that's the way to go. So it's got to be, so this, the old adage of high intensity, short duration is probably the way to go. Correct. And, and, and you know, in, in, in layman's terms, if the same objective, the same training goal is just muscle tissue growth, and we're not talking about maximal strength or any of those type of parameters, we're just talking about growing muscle. If there's an athlete A and they do six, six sets of 10 with two minutes rest, and there's athlete B that does six sets of 10 with three minutes rest, athlete A will likely see the highest muscle gains. Hmm muscle hypertrophy gains because of the metabolic stimulus that they're driving with the shorter rest periods. Interesting. For all the years that I've spent exploring exercise science and trying to get this information from the internet in various places that this is the first time it's ever been um, told to me clearly. So basically I need to put my ego aside and I need to not focus so much on getting as many reps with a given weight and keep the rest restricted Two minute, about two minutes, yeah. get the work in, and then I'll derive the benefits. I mean, you've absolutely nailed it, to be honest. And again, if you think about human nature and how we approach, we're inherently lazy, right? As, 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 as humans, we want to, you know, we want to take that rest. We want to take the, the time out to recover and feel refreshed. But we're trying to create a training stimulus. We're trying to create a very specific stimulus internal to the body. And that is often driven by the metabolic environment at that moment in time. Now, if we allow the metabolic environment to change by extending the rest periods, we're not going to see as, as beneficial gains at the end of it. Very so interesting. It, it, is, uh, it is very much a motivational and ego thing. Um, rather than saying, okay, I'm going to push my loads as high as I can and really challenge maximal strength, do fewer repetitions, take longer periods of time. It's a completely different approach to training. It's a different end goal. Interesting. And you mentioned lactate. So it seems still a bit controversial as to what actually triggers hypertrophy. You hear about lactate buildup or people, the, the common language is the muscle gets torn and then repairs, but I don't know, does the muscle actually tear? Uh, I mean, microtrauma. Okay, microtrauma. Yeah, yeah. Disruption of, um, you know, the mic within the muscle tissue for sure. Interesting. And and we're talking now about non-drug assisted 
um, people Correct. who's yeah. who's uh, let's just say it, uh, let's define our terms here are that whose testosterone levels are within the 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 range of somewhere between 300 and 1500 or whatever 1200 um because it does seem that athletes who take high levels of exogenous androgens can do more work and just get protein synthesis from just doing work yeah you know i've seen these guys in the gym right the, t- the t- telltale signs are not that hard to spot where they're just doing a, a ton of volume not necessarily moving that much weight they're just bringing blood into the into the tissue and then they're loading up on they're eating a ton of protein presumably because they're basically in puberty part 15 right right? they've gotten their 15th round of puberty where during puberty you are a protein synthesis machine i mean that's to me that that's uh you know pretty clear about puberty interesting so and then um you in terms of uh because i know the audience likes to try protocols so that that you described a protocol very nicely um what about day-to-day recovery? I mean, can the workout that you described is intense but short. How many days a week can the typical person do that and sustain progress? Yeah, I mean, I think that comes back to your training age and your training history. Obviously, there's a resilience and a robustness with, with an incremental training age. So, you know, that's not a protocol that I would advise anyone to go out and start you know, tomorrow. They'll be um, mopping them off the gym right. floor. But at the same time, it's also relative, right? So 80%, you know, of your, of your maximum at, at a young training age is still 80% versus, you know, I've been training 10 years, it's still 80%. But yes, the mechanical load is going to be significant. It's just more tonnage, right? Um, but yeah, I think a, a protocol like that, we would look at two two times, you know, a week, something that's, that's pretty intensive like that. Because again, it comes back to the point you make is that you really need to be... S- for want a better term, suffering a little bit through that type of protocol, both in terms of, of the challenge of the load, but also being able to tolerate the, the metabolic stress that you're exposed to. It's, it's, a, it's a, you know, a bit of a sicko feeling, right? Because of the lactate that you're driving up. So I, you know, we, I wouldn't promote as an athlete doing that type of modality you know, multiple, multiple times unless you're from the realms of bodybuilding. And then you really, that, that's the sole purpose of, of what you're trying to achieve. Most athletes... Um, in most sports have uh, diverse requirements in terms of outcomes that they're trying to achieve. They're not just targeting muscle growth. Uh, muscle growth is a, uh, a conduit to increase strength, increase power, um, increase speed, obviously. So yes, trying to get bigger cross-sectional area of a muscle means that we can produce more force into the ground or, or wherever it may be if we're a locomotive athlete. But usually sports men and women are not just purely seeking muscle growth. Um, they, they, they look for different facets of muscle endurance or mus- maximal muscle power, uh, muscle strength, you know, so then you've got to be very creative in how you build the workout. If it's a bodybuilder, absolutely. They're chasing muscle growth and they're going to do so with these types of protocols, which sees high intensities and high volumes of workload um, on a pretty regular basis. If it's just somebody, um, you know, a, a, a weekend warrior that wants to keep in shape and look, and look good, I would say, you know, two times a week for a really challenging workout workout like that and then flex the other types of workouts within the week to have more of a a volume emphasis where you reduce the intensity and you might just look at you know larger rep ranges from 12 to 15 to 20 another workout where you're looking at you know reducing the volume but increasing the intensity and really trying to drive you know different stimulus to to give you more end points of 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 success Mm -hmm. great no that's that's really informative um along the lines of androgens and um 
intensity. When I think intensity, I think epinephrine, adrenaline. And uh, since you have a background in right. uh, catecholamines and testosterone, last time I was uh, here at the USC Performance Institute, we had a brief conversation, and I, I want to make sure I got the details right, that in the short term, and a big increase in stress hormone can lead to an increase in testosterone, like a, like a parachute jump. Correct. Um, but uh, so stress can promote the release of testosterone. Yeah. That was news to me. Right. Um, we always hear about stress suppressing testosterone, stress suppressing the immune system, all these terrible things. But in the short term, you're saying it can actually increase the release of testosterone. Uh, so I have that right? Okay. Correct. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And so then the second question is, does my cognitive interpretation of the stressor make a difference? In other words, if I voluntarily jump out of a plane with a parachute, does it have a different effect on my testosterone than if you shove me out of the plane against my will? Well, presumably with a parachute right. too. I mean, so so this was what all my PhD work was was looking at was the um, you know the the uh, pre um, the, the exposure to a stressor and the pre arousal of how your body essentially prepares for that stressor and then how it manages it throughout the exposure to the stress. And it was actually motivated from parachute jumpers. There was an older study um, looking at parachute jumpers into, into, into combat. And um, you know, they, they were studying you know, the cortisol, the stress response and the epinephrine response of these parachute jumpers. So we, we got us thinking about, hold on, you know, there's certain workouts that you do that are just the daunting, you know, it's like, okay, it's squat, squat Saturday or whatever may be oh my gosh this is going to be a this is going to destroy me and right think, or i have to talk to this person i don't want to talk to or you know or what <laughs> exactly. right i mean yeah, something totally. or phd dissertation exactly. exam yeah, or something you know, yeah. giving public speaking or whatever it may be now you know we we, we used an exercise we used a resistance training protocol that we, that these athletes knew were, was going to be very very challenging it's going to be there's going to have some anxiety to doing it they knew there were going to be some physical distress from doing it um and therefore you know them their mindset of how they were going to approach that was already set. So what we saw prior, 15 minutes prior to the, the start of an ex exposure to, to the workout, the, the epinephrine, the neuroadrenaline, the adrenaline was already starting to prepare the body sympathetically um, to go into what it knew was going to be a very, very challenging workout. So that brings you back to, you know, exercise preparation, competition for certain preparation, uh, preparation for certain competition, excuse me. Um, you know, pre-workout routines, the use of music, um, you know, all, all these different things that we know can now, you know, anecdotally in the gym we put into place. But, you know, the data that I presented to showed that it was the first of its kind to show that this link between, um, you know, epinephrine and, and norepinephrine release and arousal and then consequent performance. So force output throughout the uh, throughout the workout was intimately linked. So what's the, what was the takeaway there? Should, is it... Um, beneficial for people to get a little stressed about the upcoming impending event, whether or not it's a lift in the gym or whether or not it's talking to somebody that you might be intimidated to talk to or a, a, an exam. Is, is the stress good for performance or is it harmful? Yeah. And I think that's a great question. And I think I can only talk to, you know, physical exertion, which is what we were, we were, we were exploring. And, and I don't want to tread on the toes of the psychologist with flow state and these types of things, because clearly I think you're in the, the position of scientific strength right. on this one. I think you have the leverage. I mean, right. I mean, most, you know, I have a lot of friends in that community as I'll just say as a, as a buffer to, to your, the answer you're about to give that there's, it, there's very little science around 
um, flow. And there's very little neuroscience related to most psychological states anyway. So I think we've got a lot of degrees of freedom here. All right. Yeah. I can breathe easy. Yeah. Thank you yeah. for that. Yeah. Yeah. I'll take it. I'll, <laughs> I'll be anything you like, credit Duncan. Anything you dislike, send the, evil, send the mean comments to me. I, yeah, I think for, from from my data, certainly the the greater the arousal, the higher the performance was from a from a physical exertion perspective, and I think that was the intriguing part of some of my findings. Where there's definitely a bio, an individual biokinetics to some of these um, hormonal kind of releases, in as much as those guys that had the highest um, you know adrenergic response in terms of epinephrine release, norepinephrine release, also sustained force output. Um, through for a longer period of the workout than those that didn't. So the the the, the individuals that had a, a lower um, stimulus of, of the sympathetic arousal, let's say, um, certainly didn't perform as well throughout the workout. Hmm. Now the intriguing thing then becomes is okay, and I think this this you know really segues into what what we're doing here that with with combat athletes with mixed martial artists you know the, there's a philosophy there's a paradigm now for myself in terms of the exposure repeat exposure you know the the more you do that challenging workout do you get the same psychological stimulus do you still get the same stress response um and and the assumption is unlikely you know you accommodate you become accustomed to the stressor your body will therefore adapt and that's the classic overload principle right and um, you then need to take the stressor down a different route but um i think when you look at you know the 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 athletes that we work with here um it's it's a fist fight at the end of the day that's there's nothing more stressful than that but i think just the exposure to the rigors of training to understand the bad positions the bad situations to know that they can get out of certain situations out of certain you know submission holds or whatever it may be I think that really ties in with some of my PhD work in terms of what these guys do to approach what is, you know, a really challenging sport and arena in mixed martial arts. Yeah, it's definitely the extreme of what's possible in terms of asking, does stress favor or hinder performance? Um, because, yeah, like you said, at the end of the day, it's someone trying to hurt you as much as they possibly can within the bounds of the rules, and you're trying right. to do the same. So that's... Yeah, you know, I find that your thesis work fascinating. Were, were you never to be at the uh, UFC Performance Institute, luckily they made the right choice and brought you here. Um, but were you never to come here, I, I was still fascinated by this because over and over we hear that stress is bad, stress is bad, stress is bad. But everything I read from the scientific literature is that stress and epinephrine in particular is coupled to the testosterone response to performance and to adaptation provided it doesn't go on too long. So um, unless I'm saying something that violates Absolutely that, I mean, that, and that's your work. So it's uh, really um, important and beautiful work. And I, I refer to it often. So I'm just glad that I've, um, Thank we you. could, you know, bolt that down because I think the people need to know this, that that discomfort is beneficial. Now, there's, a, there's another side to this um, that I want to ask about, which is um, the use of cold. Um, in particular, things like ice baths, cold showers, or uh, any other type of uh, cold temperature exposure, you know, in theory, that's stress also. It's epinephrine. And so um, how should one think about the use of cold for recovery? So if it's stress, how is, if stress, if cold causes stress, then how is cold used for recovery? That's what I don't understand. And maybe you just want to share your thoughts on that. 
Yeah, no, and I think, you know, it's a great question. And I think the, the jury is still out there, certainly, um, knowing some of the conversations that we, we've been having. But I think, you know, when we talk about stress, it's your classic fight, flight or freeze approach. Um, and, you know, throwing your body into, you know, a, a cold tub, an ice bath or whatever it may be, um, certainly is going to have a physiological stress response. Now, people are using that for different end and goals. And again, I think that's where the narrative has to be explained. Um, if you are using the stress specifically to manage the mindset, um, to use it as a specific stress stimulus, that's the same as me doing six by 10, 80%. You know, you, you're just trying to find something to disrupt the system to do something that's very, um, if you want a better term, painful, discomfort, whatever, um, you're just finding a stressor and then being able to manage the mindset. But if you're using cold um, specifically from a physiological perspective to promote, um, you know, redistribution of vascularity you know, of blood flow, you know, to, to different vascular areas of, of muscle that, that you feel have gone through a workout that are damaged or whatever it may be. I think there's we, we've got to understand what that stress mechanism is. Um, and, you know, the, the data, the literature is certainly still out there with respect to cryotherapy and cold baths and some of these, um, you know, high, these, these cold exposures in terms of what they do at the, at the level of the muscle tissue. If that's, if that's the target, if you're trying to promote a flushing mechanism or you're trying to promote redistribution of, of the blood flow, what you've got to understand is that cold is going to clamp down every part of the vascular system. Um, and we've really got to understand how the muscle would be redistributed um, to areas of interest. So, you know, I think the stress response is, 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 is a real thing with respect to, you know, cold exposure. Um, but I think the narrative around what are you using the cold for has to precede the conversation because yes, it's, you know, it, it's like putting your hand over a, a hot coals, you know, that, that's a stress the same way as jumping in a cold bath is. Um, I think most people don't realize that you're going to get the epinephrine release from holding your hand up too close absolutely. to flame. And you're going to get it from getting in the ice bath. And your body doesn't know the difference, right? Your body does not know the difference. It has a, you know, a, a, a primordial kind of physiological response that it's created over millions and millions of years. And I think that that's uh, that physiology is is not changing, and it's it's fixed in a particular way right now. Um, that that it doesn't understand the difference between whether it's six by ten doing a challenging workout over here, whether it's putting my hands on the hot coal, whether there's a lion stood in front of me or whatever. That epinephrine response from the the level of the brain down to the the whole signaling cascade is is the same mm -hmm. and cold i've heard can actually prevent some of the beneficial eff effects of training Correct. that it can actually get in, get in the way of muscle growth etc yeah there's, there's there's some pretty robust data out there now showing that it, it definitely has an influence on performance variables like strength and power in particular um but absolutely in terms of muscle hypertrophy and there's a big kind of theme in in the world of athletic performance right now in terms of periodization of cold exposure as, as a recovery modality Interesting. You know, wh when do you use cold you know should you be using cold for recovery in periods of high training load when you're actually pursuing, you know, it might be general preparatory work, we are actually trying to pursue muscle growth. Well, that's usually where you get the most sore. It's usually where, you know, you, you feel the most fatigued, but it's probably not the most beneficial approach to use an ice bath in that, in that scenario because you're dampening, you're dulling the, you know, the mTOR pathway and, and the, the hyper, hypertrophic um, signaling pathway. 
Whereas in a competition phase where actually quality of exercise and quality of execution of skill and technical work has to be maintained, you want to throw the kitchen sink of recovery uh, capabilities and recovery interventions in that scenario because you now, you know, the, the muscle building activity should be in the bank. That should have been done in the, in the general preparatory work. And um, now you're focusing on technical execution. So you're absolutely right. No, it's interesting. So if I, if I understand correctly, uh, if, if I want to maximize muscle growth or power or, you know, improvements and adaptations, then the inflammation response, the delayed onset muscle soreness, all the stuff that's uncomfortable and that we hear is so terrible is actually the stimulus for adaptation. And so using cold in that situation might short circuit my progress. But if I'm you know, I don't know that I'll ever do this, but if I were to do an Ironman or something or run a marathon under those conditions, I'm basically coming to the, to the race, so to speak, with all the power and strength I'm going to have. And so there reducing inflammation is good because it's going to allow me to perform more work essentially. Absolutely. Yeah. You have to be strategic about when you use some of these interventions and you know the the time when you're preparing for a competition is not the appropriate time uh, excuse me is the appropriate time when you want to drive recovery and make sure that your body is optimized um you know when you're far away from a a, a competition you know date or you know out of season or whatever it may be and you're really trying to just tear up the body a little bit to allow it to, to its natural um, you know healing and adaptation processes to take place well you don't want to negate that you, you know the, you want the body to optimize its internal recovery and that's how muscle growth is going to happen so so interesting th there's a time kind of consideration that you need to make with these interventions for sure at the ufc performance center are the are the fighters periodizing their cold exposure or are they just doing cold, uh, cold at, at at will well, it's not just the UFC. And again, I, I talk about my personal experiences with different sports. I think just education around where science is at and our understanding of, of concepts like the use of cold exposure for recovery, ice bath. You know, everyone wants to jump in an ice bath. But I think as we've, as we've stepped back and scientists have started to say, have started to figure out and look at some of the data, you know, we're now more intuitive about, well, actually that might not be the best or the most optimal approach. And I think that's, that's any given sport. So yes, certainly here at the, at the UFC, we're trying to educate our athletes around, you know, appropriate timing. And it's the same with nutrition. It's the same with an ice bath intervention. It's the same with lifting weights. It's the same with going for a run or working out on the bike. You know, the, 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 there's, there's tactics to when, when you do things and when you don't do things. And I think, you know, stress and, and cold exposure, um, we have to have a consideration around that as well. But it's not just, you know, MMA fighters. That's any, any athlete. And I think it's the, the, best, the best professionals, the most successful professionals do that really well. They, under, they listen, number one, they, they educate themselves, and then they build structure. And I think, you know, at, at the most elite level, we, we always talk about it here at the UFC, but the most elite level, you're not necessarily training harder than anybody else. Everybody in the UFC trains hard. Like everyone is training super hard. But the best athletes, the, the true elite levels are the ones that can do it again and again and again on a daily basis and sustain a technical output for skill development. Therefore, their skills can improve or physical development, their physical attributes can improve. So that ability to reproduce on a day-to-day -day basis falls into a recovery conversation. Now, when is the right time to use something like an ice bath and when isn't is part of the, the high-performance conversation for sure. 
So really they're scientists, they're building structure, they're figuring out variables, yeah. but it sounds like the ability to do more quality work over time is, is one of the key variables. I mean, it's fundamental. I mean, garbage in, garbage out, quality in, quality out. But in our sport, you know, I talk about, you know, mixed martial arts, it's truly a decathlon of combat. So there's so many different attributes, whether it's a grappling, whether it's a wrestling, whether it's a transition work, whether it's a stand-up striking. So the, the different facets of a training program in this sport are significantly large compared to something like, um, you know, a wide receiver in football. And that's no disrespect for wide receivers, but they run routes. They, they, they're going to run a, route, a, a, a passing tree, and that's all they need to do. These guys have to be on the ground. They've got to be great on the ground. They've got to be great standing up. They've got to be great with the, you know, the back against the fence. So there's so many different kind of facets to our sport. So managing the distribution of all the training components is one of the biggest challenges of mixed martial arts. And, and the best guys get that right. They, they allow their body to, to optimize the training. And remember, why, why are we doing training? We're doing training for ta technical and tactical improvement. Now, if, you, if your body is fatigued or you just can't expose yourself to more tactical development or technical development, then you, you, you're essentially doing yourself a disservice. You, you're going to be behind the curve with, with respect to those guys that can reproduce that day in, day out. On the topic of uh, skill development, regardless of sport, uh, we hear all the time, and it certainly is uh, intuitive to me, that the person who can focus the best will progress the fastest. But it's kind of interesting. Sometimes I talk to athletes and um, they seem uh, a little bit laid back about their training sometimes. And yet they obviously know how to flip the switch and they can really you know, dial in the intensity. Do you think that there are optimal protocols for skill learning in terms of physical skill learning? Like, could it ever be parameterized like the six sets of 10 reps? Um, you know, and this gets to the heart of neuroplasticity, which is still, you know, it's not a black box, but it's kind of a, a black box with um, portions of it illuminated, I like to I like to say. But, you know, what are your thoughts on skill development? Is there, for somebody that wants to get better at sport, uh, do you recommend a particularly um, long or short training session? It Does intensity matter or is it just reps? Yeah, I think, it, no, it's it's not a volume-driven exercise. It's a quality-driven exercise. And listen, my, my expertise is not in motor learning and motor skill acquisition. Um, I, I tend to default to Gab, Dr. Gabrielle Wolf here at, at UNLV for, for, uh, for that. She's one of the leading proponents in this area. But, you know, if, if you look at, um, you know, true skill development, it is about rehearsal of accurate movement, accurate movement mechanics, um, and the soon, as soon as that becomes impacted by fatigue or inaccurate movement, you're now losing the, the, the motor learning. You're losing the accuracy of the skill that, you know, people can call it muscle memory or whatever they want, right? But essentially you're grooving neural axons to, to create movement patterns and they're situational throughout sport, right? You know, whether it's a Cruyff turn in soccer or a jump shot in basketball or a forehand down the line, you can carve out that particular posture and position and skill and you can isolate it and you can drill it again and again and again. Now, as soon as fatigue is is influencing that repetition it's time it's time to stop and the best coaches understand that they understand that it's quality over quantity when it comes to skill acquisition so to answer your question in a roundabout way i would say yes it, it's 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 shorter sessions that are very high quality and i think the best athletes in my experience are the ones that 
consciously and cognitively are aware of it at every moment of the training session. They should they should leave the training session not necessarily just physically fatigued, but mentally fatigued because they're completely engaged in the learning process. Mm. The, the the problem then becomes okay if we just do lots of you know thirty minute sessions. We've got to do a lot of thirty minute sessions to get the volume exposure of the repetition and the rehearsal of the skill again and again and again. So it's a bit of a paradox. It's a bit of a double-edged sword. But, you know, a, a three-hour session versus a 90-minute session, you know, we'll, we'll take the 90-minute session any day when it comes to skill acquisition because that's going to be driven by quality over quantity. Yeah, training and skill learning is incredibly mentally fatiguing. I've often wondered why when one works out hard, whether or not it's with, uh, you know, run or with the weights, why it's hard to think later in the day. Right. Yeah, it really, there really does seem to be something to it. it. And I've wondered, is it depletion of adrenaline, dopamine? I sometimes think it might be dopamine. And here I'm totally speculating. I don't have any data to support this. But if you hit a really hard workout or run early in the day, oftentimes the brain just doesn't want to do hard mental work, which gives me great admiration for these athletes that are drilling their mind and body all all day, every day um, with breaks. But so what are your thoughts? What, what, what leads to the mental fatigue after physical performance? Well, again, I don't want to talk out, you know, I'm talking the, to the man here, you know, this. this well, we're, we're much. just two scientists yeah, speculating yeah, yeah. on, I, I, on this point. Up until now, we've been, uh, you've been giving us concrete um, uh, peer-reviewed study-based feedback on the, my questions. But, but if we were to speculate, I mean, I think this is a common occurrence. People think if I get that really good workout in in the morning, I feel better all day. Right. That's true, unless that workout is is really intense or really long. Yeah. And then you just, the mind just somehow won't latch on to mental work quite, I, quite as well. I, I mean, just philosophically, you know, I think there's, there's, a, there's a, coming back to this kind of stress consideration, you know, like a, a public speaking or taking an exam. I mean, if, you're, if, if, if you have an amazing coach who is setting up training in a particular way, it's challenging. It, there's a strain related to it. And I'm not talking physical strain. I'm talking figuring things out, you know, figuring out the skill. And I think that can be stressful. Like the learning process can be stressful. So, um, you know, we've touched on stress. I also think if they if they you know, if the, if they hit the right technique, you know that reward center in the brain, that dopamine shot is is gonna fly up there. And there's only so many times that we can get that before that becomes dampened. And I think there's an energetic piece to it. You know, there's the fueling of of the brain. There's the there's the the, the carbohydrate fueling exercise. That actually the strategy around how you fuel for learning and fuel for physical training. It's, it's actually pretty similar. Mm -hmm. Glucose. Um, yeah, it's it's glucose. It's sugar at the end of the day, right? Um, so, you know, are you, are, you, are you fueling accordingly around your training sessions? Be that very physical because everyone thinks, okay, you know, I'm going to jump on a treadmill and I'm going to bang out, you know, 15 sprints at, at max effort and I'm going to, you know, be dropping off and lying on the floor at the end of it. I need to refuel. Well, what about the refueling of the brain in a very demanding uh, exercise or drilling session where you're looking at technique that you're trying to figure out that's very challenging for your mind to figure out the complexity of it that still needs to be fueled or refueled afterwards and I think that's obviously you know, might be an area where athletes do themselves a disservice by not appropriately fueling from what might be considered to be a lower intensity session but the the the, the cognitive challenge has been significantly high so they're doing skill work or drill work and 
it's taxing the brain. And but they're thinking, yeah. oh, you know, I wasn't, you know, pushing hard lifts or, or doing sprints. And so I can just go off the rest of my day, but then their, their, their mind is drifting. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I speculate. Yeah. No, that, that, that seems very reasonable. I mean, I know that um, here and presumably with the other athletes you've worked with, uh, nutrition is a huge um, aspect of that. And I think the general public can learn a lot from athletic nutrition because in, at the end of the day, the general public is trying to attend to their kids, attend to their work, whether or not they're lawyers or whatever. Um, they need to focus. Uh, nutrition is a barbed wire topic. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> but uh, if uh, since we're free to uh, do what we would do if we were just sitting in each other's offices, which is to just uh, speculate a bit it, for the typical person. Right. Do you think these um, low carbohydrate diets, uh, typical person who exercises, runs, swims, yoga, lifts weights, maybe not all those things, but some collection of those is pushes themselves to do those things and to do them well, but isn't necessarily a highly competitive athlete. Do you think that um, nutrition that doesn't include a lot of glucose, doesn't include a lot of carbohydrates um, is a problem or is it okay? Uh, what do you what do you recommend for athletes? What do you recommend for typical people? Yeah, again, disclaimer: I'm not a dietitian, um, but I that's okay. The dietitians don't know what to recommend to athletes <laughs> either, and I say that from having spent a lot of time with the literature. Now it's a complete right. mess. Yeah, it's like I thought we didn't understand anything about the brain. The nutrition science stuff is all over the place. Right. So I think we have again a, a large degrees of freedom. Right. 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 Yeah. right. I mean, I think you know, I, I think for, it's it comes down to metabolic efficiency. Um, so we would never, we would never advocate a high. You know, I never say never, okay. But you know, we rarely advocate a high performance athlete in a in a high intensity intermittent sport like MMA um, being totally ketogenic. Or, or you do being, not recommend that. No, because at the end of the day, some of those high intensity efforts um, usually require you know carbohydrate fueling um, for, for the high and the energy. Um, the energy is produced at those high intensities. So we try to navigate around that. Now, the, listen, there are fighters in the UFC and, and elsewhere. Matt Brown is a great example um, who, who you know, promotes the ketogenic approach and it works for him. But we, we, we look at the science and the nature, the characteristics of our sport, and we don't necessarily promote that. Can I interrupt you real quick? What about ketones for people that are ingesting carbohydrates? This is an interesting area because people always hear ketones and they think, oh, I have to be ketogenic to benefit from taking ketones. Right. But there are a number of athletes and um, recreational athletes now as well, taking liquid or powder-based ketones on, even though they do eat rice and oatmeal and bread and other things. So are there any um, known benefits of ketones even if one is not in a state of ketosis? So the, 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 uh, the, the only... The, the the use of ketones that I'm primarily aware of is is um, in our sport is after the event you know in terms of the brain health with with athletes that take you know potentially taking trauma to the brain etc and looking to maintain the, the the fueling and the energy supply to the brain but yes it's probably a little bit out of my remit so I I don't want to talk on that because I'm not I'm not fully familiar with that well I've heard that ketones um, after head injury can provide a buffering component correct it's not going to reverse brain damage but it might be able to offset some of the micro damage right so that that's what that's how we use it just to sustain um, you know the energy supply to the brain that might be compromised through brain trauma um, so that's why we use ketones 
Um, to come back to your original question, if it's a, a you know general population, then yes, I think there's there's a place to argue that actually being on a ketogenic diet at times, and maybe this, it's a cycling exercise, maybe not, you know, I don't mean cycling a bike, I mean cycling um, ketosis um, is beneficial because I think it's going to lead to better metabolic management and, and, and metabolic efficiency. At those lower intensities where we should be fueling our, our metabolism with lipids and fats, um, clearly the, the Western diet and, and, you know, the modern day diet is heavily driven by processed foods and carbohydrates that, you know, people become predisposed to utilization of that fuel source, um, above lipid use, fat use, um, intensities that are very low. So, you know, some of our data with the fighters shows that as well. Um, but I think the challenge for us is that we're working with a clientele that require high intensity bouts of effort. Um, so, you know, fueling appropriately um, is, is very important for that. Now, we use we use tactics here where we essentially have athletes on what you would say kind of a, is a, a largely a ketogenic diet, but then we will fuel carbohydrates around training sessions. So we'll do very timed exposure to carbohydrates. So it's not post training, post training, immediately pre during and then immediately post and then the rest of their diets you know breakfast lunch and dinner are what would look like ketogenic type approaches so we're trying to be very tactical in the exposure to maximize the intensity for the training um, and then return to a metabolically efficient diet which is heavily reduced in carbohydrate because we've fueled the the, the sessions that need it well, i'm smiling because uh, once again the this place, the UFC Performance Center is doing things scientifically, which, you know, to me, the idea that, and, and I'm pleased to hear that because to me, that's idea that the ketogenic diet is the best and only diet or carbohydrates and uh, low protein diets are the best diet. It's just, it's ludicrous. Right. Then you mentioned metabolic efficiency. I think um, some people might be familiar with that term, some perhaps um, not, but the way I understand metabolic uh, efficiency is that you're you teach the body to use fats by maybe doing long, long bouts of cardio, maybe lowering carbohydrates a bit. So teaching the body to tap into its fat stores for certain periods of training. And then you also teach the body to utilize carbohydrates by supplying carbohydrates immediately after training and before training. You teach the body to use ketones and then you use them at the appropriate time as opposed to just deciding that one of these fuel sources is good and all the others are bad or dispensable. Do I have that correct? You nailed it. Oh, yeah. I mean, from uh, Bob Sibahar, is formerly of USA Triathlon, um, is is the guy that kind of came up with the, the the concept of metabolic efficiency. But yes, you're absolutely right. I mean, at low intensities of exercise or just day to day living, we shouldn't be tapping into our um, carbohydrate fuel sources extensively. That that's that's for higher intensity work or you know the fight or flight needs of of stress. You know. Um, if you know athletes or any individual has a you know, a high carbohydrate diet, they're going to start to become predisposed to utilizing that fuel source preferentially. Now, at low intensity, that can be problematic, certainly for an athlete, because if they preferentially use carbohydrate at lower intensities, when the when the exercise demand goes to a higher intensity, they've already exhausted their fuel stores. You know, they can't draw upon fat because the oxidization of that, that fat is just too slow. So they're essentially now become fatigued um, because they've, they've already utilized the carbohydrate stores. So what we try to do, yes, through diet manipulation and a little bit of exercise manipulation is, as you say, teach the body or train the body to preferentially use a specific fuel source 
fat, obviously, at lower intensities and carbohydrate at high intensities. And we look at specifically the crossover point between the two tells a lot in terms of how an athlete is, is ultimately, um, you know, how their metabolism is working. Well, again, I, I'm smiling because I love this because it's grounded in something real and scientific, which is that we have these different fuel sources. The body can adapt to use any number of them or one of them. I think most people are looking for that one pattern of eating, that one pattern of exercising that's going to be best for them or sustain them. And they often look back to the time when they felt so much better switching from one thing to the next. But the adaptation process itself is also key, right? Teaching the body. And I, um, so if we were to um, just riff on this just a little bit further. If, if somebody, uh, I'll use myself as an example, since I, I can only um, speculate what other people's uh, current nutrition protocols are, but if somebody is eating in a particular way and they want to try this kind of periodization of nutrition, um, could one say, okay, for a few weeks, I'm going to do more high intensity interval training and weight training, and I'm going to eat a bit more carbohydrate because I'm depleting more glycogen. Then if I switch to a a phase of my training where I'm doing some longer runs. Maybe I'm not, maybe I'm training less. Maybe I'm just working at my desk a little bit more. Then I might switch to a lower, lower carbohydrate diet. Do I have that right? And then if I'm going to enter a competition of some sort, certainly not UFC right. <laughs> or MMA of any kind, to be clear, uh, not because it isn't a wonderful sport, but because it's uh, that wouldn't be good for my other profession. But um, if I were going to do that, then I would think about stacking carbohydrates, ketones, and and fats is that do i have that more i mean i think i think yeah you just said it eloquently at the end of the day you're consciously understanding what the um the exposure to to physical exertion is and you're flexing your diet accordingly and i think so it's need-based eating exactly you know for for one of better terms you know you can call it whatever fancy terminology there is out there but yes it's it's needs-based eating um but you're very conscious and cognizant of what is my current exercise status you know if i'm you know, if I'm taking some time off, then, you know, don't gorge on the carbohydrates. We probably need to be cut. It's going to be lower intensity work or even just habitual day-to-day walking around, doing your groceries. You know, that that doesn't require massive amounts of glycogen storage and, and, and carbohydrate fueling. Um, so you can potentially go more ketogenic in nature, um, you know, oxidizing lipids for that fuel. Um, if you are in a high period of, of high intensity training, then you have to consciously flex your diet to support that. That's not normal. You've, you've made a, a change. You've elevated the demand. So the fueling requirements for the regenerative, not only fueling the exercise, but the regenerative requirements of your body after that type of work is going to be really important as well. So yes, take on more carbohydrates. So I think it's consciously interpreting the nature of your diet against what, where you are at any moment in time. Yeah, like that. You know, I think um, the listeners of my podcast generally are experimenters. Right. They, they are scientists of themselves, which yeah. um, which makes me happy, obviously. And 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 I like to think that they're paying attention to the changes they're making and how they're affecting themselves. And they seem more open to um, trying things, provided they can do it safely. You know, and um, and and seeing what works for them. And I'm certainly going to try some of the change up. I also am really a creature of habit, and I think the uh, Talking to you today, I realize I'm probably doing a number of things truly wrong in my training, but also that I don't tend to vary uh, my nutrition with my training quite as much as I should. I'm just locked into a protocol. Um, we uh, we covered a number of things related to your PhD thesis work, and then uh, but I cut you off early on related to your uh, trajectory after you finished your thesis. Yeah, you I know you were at Notre Dame 
for a while. Was that your first spot after after your PhD thesis? No, no. I um, I basically finished my PhD and I dropped into the British Olympic system for about fourteen years. Oh my! I was, okay. I was you know I was with. Um, you know, I've done three full Olympic cycles um, with different sports and largely a strength and conditioning coach um, as a practitioner. I was always working in, in universities and academia alongside, you know, in terms of continuing to publish and write um, and, and do research and teach as well. Because That I enjoy, explains I the huge teaching. volume of publications. <laughs> yeah. I don't think people realize what the work that goes into getting a quality peer-reviewed publication it's not uh, what what do they call it now on instagram anecdata where people do something what you know right, they have yeah. this experience and then they put it in the world that it, yeah. it's a it, anecdata are i don't even know that we should call it data but uh so 14 years in the, working with the british olympic team yeah so with um, you know whether it was gb boxing primarily with the with the the rio excuse me the the beijing cycle but also lightweight rowers and gymnastics and um, for the london olympic games that cycle i was with i was uh, the lead strength and conditioning and physical performance coach for british basketball so gb basketball um i had about three years um in the english premier league and um, with with newcastle united and, and, and the soccer team and then for the rio olympic cycle i was with great britain taekwondo so again a, a, another combat sport um, after I'd finished there, I kind of moved to the University of Notre Dame, um, where I went into more of a more of a managerial position, working across all the different technical services: medical, nutrition, strength and conditioning, you know, sp psychology, uh, whatever, sports science, whatever it may be. Um, as the you know uh, the um, director of performance sciences at, for Notre Dame Athletics. And then after about 16 months there, the UFC came uh, knocking and, and they recruited me out of Notre Dame. So um, it's been uh, it's been a great ride and lots of, you know, I've got, you know, lot, lots of athletes have taught me a lot along the way. Lots of coaches, you know, every day is a school day. I, I still try and keep that that mentality. And, you know, in this world, we call it white, bent, white belt mentality. You know, it's, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a PhD. I've got 25 years of experience in, in high performance sport, but um, I still... I still learn every single day from these people out on the mats and in the ring, and it's it's impressive to see what they do. Yeah, it certainly is. I I got introduced to MMA just a few years ago. Uh, I think the first time I came out here was one of the first times I had heard of MMA because I was kind of in my laboratory and you know nose down. Um, and it's a really interesting sport because it incorporates so many different types of movement, as you right. said. You know, it's not just stand up boxing; it's uh, just kicking. It's every you know ground game, everything. And I'm still learning about it, um, but it. As you mentioned, going in with that beginner's mind, the white, ben, uh, white belt mentality, um, what, what has been the most surprising thing for you in terms of being exposed to M MMA in particular as opposed to other sports? Like what's, what's unique about MMA fighters besides that they have this huge variety of, of uh, tactical skills that they have to learn and perfect? Uh, yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I would say two things. I'm going to answer two questions. One actually reiterates what you've already said. Like the degrees of freedom in mixed martial arts are exponential. Like no other sport. You know, you, we've got 11 different weight classes. We have men's classes. We have women's classes. We have, um, you know, kickboxers, wrestlers, jujitsu fighters, judokas, you know, like karate fighters. You know, the stylistic backgrounds are infinite. Um, we have, we're a weight classification sport. There's a whole issue relating to making weight and then rebound to to fight about 24 to 30 hours like just the variability in this sport the 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 considerations that you have to make are unprecedented compared to any other sport that i've worked with um, and a lot of them 
go against and they are the antithesis of what you would expect for a high performance. You know, in, in terms of we we don't always have a very clearly defined competition schedule. You know, once these guys fight, they they don't necessarily know when their next fight's going to be. What's the closest spacing of a of a fight? I mean, listen, I think the the, the record is around. Um, it's it's just over a month, I believe. <laughs> Goodness. Um, so you know that that's a quick turnaround. But most of these guys are fighting, you know, three or four times a year. Three times a year is is pretty normal. Um, the, the the bigger fights maybe two times a year. But invariably, the guys don't know when that next date is going to be. So we're in this gray area of okay, what 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 do we do? Like, are we are we taking some time off? Are we just going to do some general prep work? Are we going to try and keep this the you know the knife sharpened in case I get? I a- didn't realize this. In that way, it's a lot like special operations. Absolutely, you yeah. don't know when the call they, is going to happen. Right, they have to be ready at all times. There isn't this like let's get ready for the season. Right. Yeah, like when when I was with the British Olympic Association, you know, I knew it was the the British Open, the Spanish Open, the French Open, the European Championships, the Israeli Open, the American Open, the Canadian Open, the Olympic Games. You know, I could. You, it's you a have circuit that. in your brain, right? You yeah, tell. you just yeah. you just yeah. plan yeah. Exactly. like you, you know where all the targets are going to be. Here, it's a moving target because you might be just hanging out doing some general prep work, and then you might get a short notice fight. They give you a quick call, and it's in six weeks or five weeks, and okay, I've got to ramp everything up really quickly. So that's a real. Challenge challenge in terms of just managing all these this these different components of mixed martial arts um alone the the other to come back to your question the other thing which is truly fascinating about these individuals is their just their mental resilience and again we, we've touched on it in the talk but you know the ability to do what they do on a daily basis to um look at all the different skill sets that they have to try and engage in and and, and bring into their training to do that and, and and embrace the grind, embrace the process of just learning. Um, the physical side of our sport is unprecedented, um, but the mental side, you know, we have a funny saying here, we always say it's 90% medical, uh, 90% mental apart from the 60% that's physical. So, it, you know, it's just, it's just more and more and more. And these, these guys ability to, um, to just do that on a daily basis is, is 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 very impressive like the resilience their their internal drive and their resilience is 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 really impressive to see yeah all the fighters i've met here have been really terrific it's interesting um every time i meet a fighter how often i um i shouldn't be surprising where they're often very soft-spoken right they're always extremely polite yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know and fighting is such a uh, you know it comes from a very primitive portion of the brain Right is a, but a large portion of the brain nonetheless. But I think that's another yeah. skill is that switch, mm-hmm. you know? And, and again, that's the recoverability piece, right? Like you cannot be type A or you cannot be like supercharged 24 hours a day because you're gonna just fry your system, right? And I think that's something else where we're really trying to manage this whole process, be it through nutritional interventions, be it through education around sleep, be it through um, training prog- program management, um, be it through psychological interventions, you know, th- you could look at fighters and say, like, these guys are go. Like, they're red alert and they, they'll run through a brick wall. But actually, again, their ability to turn it on and off means that they can do what they do. You know, they can bring it down and, and be very normal, very, very polite, very, you know, uh, accommodating. Maybe even better than most people because, you know, one of the reasons I'm obsessed with with human performance and high performance and people like fighters and, you know, elite military or uh, or even bodybuilders for that matter is that, they they experiment yeah they find the outer limits of what's possible but one of the things that they have discovered as you're describing is this ability to toggle between high alert states and calm states most 
Typical people can't do this. They see something that upsets them on the internet or something on the news or some external event pressures down on them and they're stressed for many, many days and weeks. And sometimes it goes pathological, right? And, and this, I don't say this as a criticism. It's just that most, most human beings within our species, most members of our species never learn to, to either flip the switch or to just voluntarily toggle between states. I think athletes learn how to do that extremely well. And um, it sounds like MMA fighters do that even better than perhaps many other athletes. I mean, yeah, there's the odd one or two that would struggle with. But I think in terms of that chronic exposure, we, we see um, that coming from challenges around, you know, cyclical weight cutting and metabolic disruption and metabolic injury, not necessarily from the psychological drive. Um, you know, they, they, do, they do understand that this is a job for them. Um, and the time on the mats, you know, most of them can can turn it off a little bit and, and downgrade things when they're off the mats. It's it's, uh, it's impressive to see. Because again, like as, as a layman, just looking in at, at the fight game, you think, you know, it's going to be crazy chaotic, 100 miles an hour, every hour of every day. But um, that's not, that's clearly not the case. They, 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 they manage their energy and their efforts pretty well. It's a little bit like science, although maybe scientists could take a lesson from it. Yeah, is it that evidence-based practice or right. practice-based evidence, no, right? I like that. That's good. <laughs> um, a couple more questions. I, I can't help myself. I know we talked about temperature earlier uh, when we discussed cold, but I, I can't help myself. I have to ask you about heat because earlier we were having a, a conversation about heat adaptation, about how long does it take for uh, the human body or athlete or typical person that's maybe exploring sauna or things of that sort to learn to be a better sweater. It right. sounds like something none of us would want to do. We all want to stay cool, calm, and collected. But one of the reasons to deliberately expose oneself to heat is for things like growth hormone release, et cetera. We can talk about this, but um, a couple of questions. One, is heat exposure stress in the same way that the ice bath or cold exposure is stress? The second one is, is there any difference there that's important? And the other one is, how does one get better at heat adaptation? Or at least what are you doing with the fighters to get them better at dealing with heat? How long does that take? So the first question, just because um, I threw three questions at you, <laughs> is uh, was, you know, is heat stress like cold is stress? Yeah, I think it is. And I think, you know, heat shock proteins, for example, are driven by that stressful exposure to a changing environment. Um, so I think, you know, it's... It, it, we do graded response in terms of heat acclimation strategies. Um, but yes, as we, we've touched on it earlier in the conversation. For me, heat is still a stressor. Um, and if it's managed incorrectly, you can have detrimental responses rather than beneficial responses. So, so barring like hyperthermia and death, like, I mean, obviously you heat up the brain too much, people will have yeah. seizures and die, but um, you lose neurons. But uh, what's the right way to acclimate heat? Uh, taking into account that people are, you know, should, should check with their doctor, et cetera. We do all these disclaimers, but, you know, but let's say I, let's just say I want to get better at dealing with heat or I want to extract more benefit from heat is, I mean, how many minutes a day are people typically exposing themselves to heat? How often and over how, what periods of time? Yeah, so we, we we normally start with about 15 minutes of exposure. Now, if someone's really lacking acclimation to heat, you know, you can do that in 
three, five minute efforts. Do you know what I mean? And actually this take is hot, time. hot sauna. Yeah, hot sauna. Take time to step 200 out. degrees or something like Correct. Fahrenheit. Yeah, 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 200 Fahrenheit, yes. Um, and we, we, we try to work up to 30 to 40 minutes to 45 minutes in the sauna continuous. Now, we, we have to understand, you know, what, what's the advantage of heat acclimation for our athletes? Ultimately, their ability to sweat and to lose, you know, body fluids is going to be advantageous to their weight cut process, so their ability to make weight. It is a technique that these guys, some of these guys adopt. So if you don't have, you know, high sweat rates, it means you're going to have to sit in the sauna for longer and longer and longer to get the same delta in sweat release. Um, so the more acclimated you are, the more your body is thermogenically adapted, the more sweat glands you have, um, the more pores, you, you can sweat more and therefore you'll lose that fluid quicker and you spend less time in the sauna. So that's why we do it, um, to try and promote the, the lim to limit the exposure. And it comes back to your first question, is it a stressor? It's, it, absolutely, it's a stressor if you've got to spend you know, two hours over you know over a four hour period two hours of it sat in a sauna yeah. because you where just the phone sweating. doesn't work so you can't be, no right. just yeah. you know it's, people divorce them from their phone and that's a stressor in itself right, right. i mean yes i think you know there's there's a you know w what we do is we, we like anything we build up in temperature but we build up in, in volume of exposure so you know we start with 15 minutes and then we just try to add on and add on across a time and now now for us we kind of found about 14 um sauna exposures starts to really then drive the adaptations that we're looking for so it's not a quick fix you know a, a heat acclimation strategy has to happen long before fight week or long before the fights you know this is a this is a process that has to begin you know eight to ten weeks before the fight so that we can actually get that adaptation and that tolerance to the stressor to the exposure of heat this is interesting i until today when we talk about this earlier and again now I didn't realize that, um, but it makes perfect sense now that I hear it, that heat adaptation is possible, that you basically can train the body to become better at cooling itself, which is yep. what, what sweating is. I mean, I should have known that before, but you know, you don't see that in the textbooks. And so, yeah. I mean, listen, it's, it, it's, it's the same as the ketogenic conversation. You know, you, you're training your body to be more met metabolic efficient. You're training your body to tolerate heat more. You're training your body. Like the body is, a, you know, as an organism, as an org organic system, it's, it's hugely adaptable. It's hugely plastic. But I think the skill is understanding the whens, the whys, and the whereofs in terms of changing the overload, changing the stimulus to drive specific adaptation. And philosophically, that's, that's how we go about our work here. We talk about adaptation-led programming. Now, adaptation-led programming fits into every single category, not just lifting weights or running track. It fits into nutrition. It fits into sitting in the sauna. It fits into being in a cold bath or not. It fits into so many different things because we're driven by scientific insights. And, and that's how we really wanna go about our business. I love it. I love this concept of adaptation led programming and doing that, not just in the context of, you know, throwing another plate on the bar or something like that, but in every aspect of, of one's training and, and performance. And I think there's a lot here that's applicable to the recreational athlete too. Yeah. Would you say that, you know, what comes to mind is 12 weeks. It feels like 12 weeks is a nice block of time for someone to try something in terms of to try something new, see how they adapt, adapt, and then maybe switch to something new. I realize that it's very hard to throw a kind of pan um, time frame around something. But in terms of if someone wanted to experiment with heat adaptation or experiment with cold adaptation or 
change up their training regimen or, or diet and uh, look at metabolic efficiency. Do you think um, 12 weeks is a good period of time to really give something a thorough go and get and un- get, gain an understanding of how well or how poorly something works for oneself? Or would you say eight is enough or three? I mean, that's that's the how long is a piece of string kind of response, yeah. right? I, I mean, yes, if if we're just talking arbitrary numbers. Recreational experimenter, yeah. Like yeah. Th- three months exposure, 12-week training, you know, strategy, tra- 12-week intervention is, is more than adequate to say for 99% of things that change within the body that physiologically adapt to a training stimulus or an overload stimulus, you're going to start to see either regression or progression um, you know, beneficial or detrimental effects within three months. Absolutely, I would say. So now listen, we, I, I say that in as much as we do training blocks here that are three weeks long. Right. You know, well, so this, we'll, that's because of this constraint that sometimes people suddenly have to, they get the call to fight. Correct. Yeah. So it's like super condensed. And, you know, in, in that in that scenario, we're always conscious of is their body, is their body or um, this individual, do they have the ability to tolerate that super overload that like super condensed exposure now we might be doing that purposefully we might be trying to do an overreaching strategy where we're really trying to damage or flex something and i don't mean like negatively damage but like we're trying to damage tissue to really get an adaptive response versus you know a more drawn out 12-week strategy which is more coherent more planned out more structured in nature but um yeah for all your listeners i would say if if 12 weeks to engage in in a process of of you know, trying to change and adapt your body or expose yourself to something is more than sufficient to see if it's going to be um, the right approach for you. And I think, you know, the, 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 the individual interpretation is always has to be considered. And I think that's where it comes back to, to be a thinking man's athlete or be a thinking man's trainer, like someone that's going through exercise. Don't, you have to cogniz- consciously understand where your body's at any moment in time. You know, you've got to be real with yourself. You you create a journal, create a log of your training, create a log of your feelings, your subjective feedback of, um, you know, how you felt, your mood, your sleep. Your athletes do that. Yeah. Yeah, we, we we try to promote that because again, that's, that's part of this, this process, you know, um, might be 12 weeks for you, but I might get the same responses in eight, eight weeks, you know? And I think that's, that's, uh, that's another critical theme here is that, you know, we could put 15 guys on the mat and give them the same workout and there's going to be 15 different responses to that same workout because the human organism is so complex and in nature that it's going to adapt differently. You know, some people will tolerate it. Some people are going to be challenged by it. Some people have got a metabolic makeup that's going to promote it. Some people are meta- metabolically challenged by it. You know, there's there's just so many different things that we have to consider. And that's what we try to do here. It's the cross we bear is that we try to understand on an individual level how to optimize athletic performance. I think it's terrific. And, uh, you know, the athletes here are so fortunate to have this. And most people out there, um, I've, you know, I've certainly been trying to encourage people to learn some science and some mechanism and become scientists of their own pursuits, whether or not skill learning or athletic pursuit, uh, et cetera. Um, as a sort of a final question, what are some things about the UFC or something about the UFC that perhaps people don't know in terms of its overall mission or what you guys are trying to do here? I mean, I think I've, I've become a fan of MMA and I am more and more as time moves on. Um, some people might be into MMA, some people not into watching MMA, but what are some things that the UFC is interested in and doing um, that most people might not know about and certainly I might not know about? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think... 
you know, we we um, we try to be cutting edge. We try to be super progressive. You know, we, we we think we've got an amazing platform here, particularly at the Performance Institute, to do some really cool things that can inform many different people. And I don't, that doesn't just mean the the 600 or so athletes that are on our global roster. Um, what we're trying to do is is influence you know, global community around optimizing human performance. So, uh, you know, any moment in time, we're engaging in different technologies with different vendors, different partners, you know, exploring opportunities to, you know, learn more, share data, understand what's the best mechanisms for, you know, interpreting your body, interpreting how your body's responding to training, interpreting, you know, your nutrition or whatever it may be. We, we get, we're in a really privileged position to do that. Um, but we've also, you know, hence you've been here today, you know, we're also trying to venture into some really cool areas of science and research that's got applicability um, that you can take from high performance athletes and apply, you know, to yourself, to, you know, Joe Blow walking down the street, you know, out there um, that, that is really interesting. And that's everything from, um, you know, whether it's CBD and psychedelics through to different technologies for, you know, thermal monitoring and Bluetooth heart rate monitoring or whatever it may be through to data management, et cetera, and, and, and anything in between. We've, we've got some great partners on the nutrition side, on the psychology side, on the data side. And um, I think, you know, we, we always try to just push the envelope a little bit more. I think we, we keep our core mission with our athletes, but I think a lot of what we do hence your podcast and, you know, like an, an amazing platform. You do such a great job of it that, you know, we can all learn and take from, you know, the elite and interpret how it might help us and, and just in the general population. So I think that's, you know, that's our, our North Star is to provide our athletes the best integrated service of care. Um, but we also want to influence, you know, just the global community and put you know, the UFC at the forefront of that. That's great. Well, you guys are certainly doing it. And we, um, can't uh, let the cat out of the bag just yet, but uh, the things that we're gearing up to do with my laboratory and, yeah, and the work together, um, uh, hopefully we'll be able to talk about that and share that in, in the year to come. But that's we're very excited about that. And um, Duncan, look, you know, I have this, uh, this uh, filter that I use when I talk to people, uh, academics or otherwise, which is, you know, some people, they open their mouth and it, and it doesn't make much difference. But when you speak, I learn so much. I, I'm going to take the protocols that I've, I've heard about today. I'm going to think about how I'm training and how I could train differently and better, how I'm eating, how I could eat different, differently and better for sake of performance and just in, in general. Um, thank you so much for your time, your scientific expertise, the stuff you're doing in the practical realm. It's, it's immense. So uh, hopefully uh, we can do it again. Yes, thank you. This has been a blast. I appreciate it. And uh, yeah, keep doing what you're doing because uh, I know there's a lot of people out there that love the platform. So thanks for the invite. It's been awesome. Well, thank you. Thanks so much. Thank you for joining me for my conversation with Dr. Duncan French. I hope you found it as insightful and informative as I did. If you're enjoying this podcast and or learning from it, please subscribe to our YouTube channel. Please also leave us a comment or a suggestion of a future topic or future guests that you'd like us to have on the Huberman Lab podcast. In addition, please subscribe to our podcast on Apple and Spotify. And on Apple, you can leave us up to a five-star review. Please also check out the sponsors that we mentioned at the beginning of this episode. That's a terrific way to support this podcast. And as mentioned at the beginning of today's episode, we are now partnered with Momentous Supplements because they make single ingredient formulations that are of the absolute highest quality and they ship international. 
If you go to livemomentous.com slash Huberman, you will find many of the supplements that have been discussed on various episodes of the Huberman Lab podcast, and you will find various protocols related to those supplements. I'd also like to mention that if you're not already following us on Instagram at Huberman Lab, you might want to do so there. I do brief science tutorials and offer science-based protocols for all sorts of things that are often separate from the protocols and information covered on the Huberman Lab podcast. We're also on Twitter as Huberman Lab. And last, and certainly not least, thank you for your interest in science. 